Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, and the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. (laughs) Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Word of the Lord, you can be seated. Thank you, Dan. And thanks be to God for all of his word. And thanks be to God for women. (laughs) Will you read this uh, top line with me? Are you ready? We will be a congregation who knows, honors, and reads the Bible. And indeed we will. Uh, One of our 10 vision targets here at Northeast is uh, we want you to know the Bible. We want you to honor it as authoritative. We want you to actually read it. Honestly, we just want you to love it. Like I want you to believe truly in your heart that the Bible's not boring and that it's not out of reach for our day and our time. I want you to see that it's fun, that it's interesting, and that has the truth of life therein. Okay, so uh, in order to kind of accomplish this vision target for us, Uh, This year in 2023, and hopefully many years to come, we'll see how this all shakes out, uh, we're going to have 15 weekends that are dedicated to next level deep Bible study. Who was here last weekend? Okay, so most of you. You remember Genesis part one? We got Genesis part two this week, and we're going to go in on it. 
All right, we're going to go in on it. Um, so basically, we've got uh, here at the beginning of the year three, three little sermons together. We did, we did Genesis last week. We're doing Genesis part two today. Next week, Mark Moore will be here. And uh, he's going to do Exodus and Deuteronomy. He's basically going to take us from Egypt to the promised land. Then we'll come back to another Bible series after Easter uh, in May. We'll go back to some normal series after that, right? We want to keep a rhythm of this locked in to the life of our church. Now, for all the freshmen in the room, let me just give you a little bit of advice, all right? If you're not in the scribe tribe, all right, if you're not next level, bring in like your notes and, you know, getting here early so you can, uh, okay. Um, for all the freshmen here, I'll just give you a few pieces of advice. First, take notes. Take notes, like bring your actual Bible, take notes in your Bible, take notes in your journal. It'll help you retain some of the information that we go through here and you'll wanna come back to it. Second, read the textbook before and after class. I mean the Bible, read it, like read the stories we go through, read the stories that we're gonna go through. I'm gonna reference a lot of different Bible stories today, so make sure that you're jumping on those, reading them, going and reviewing them on your own. Uh, We have tons of awesome resources, by the way, to help you read the Bible, like our podcast, Preacher and the Piano Man podcast. Anybody listen to the podcast this week? Oh, that is great, several of you. So this is called a same page series. That means right now across the street with the kids, they're studying Genesis 2, all right? They're studying Genesis right alongside the adults. And we want, for those of you with young kids, start cultivating conversations and points of prayer about the Bible with your young ones. So we spend a lot of time on this, all right? I think it's pretty good, I really do. And it will help you uh, read and pray the Bible with your kids. So if you got young kids, just try it out this week. It's on a podcast app um, for for iTunes, Preacher and the Piano Man. Uh, We drop three episodes a week. Also, you can go to nechurch.org slash resources, and we have all sorts of book recommendations and Bible project videos there that will help you go next level. Now, the last piece of advice for all the freshmen in the room is this. Bring energy. Bring energy to the Bible. Bring positivity. Want to learn. If you don't bring energy to the Bible, then we might catch you, you know, head nodding, you know, as, as it gets closer to noon. I know you haven't eaten yet. Like, it's time, right? Bring some energy. Be excited about this. Because I, I will go through on my promise. It wasn't a promise, it was a threat. I will go through on my threat that I made last week. If you fall asleep and you snore out loud in the sermon, I will walk off stage. The camera will follow me. And for the world to see, I will wake you up. All right. I'm really hoping somebody falls asleep. Okay. Now, picking up where we left off last week. Uh, This is how I describe Genesis to us. Genesis is an origin story, right? It's an origin story. It's Batman Begins for the Batman fans. It's Monsters University for the young parents in the room. It tells us the story of how Mike and Sully became friends, right? Or this, I think this is the best description of it. I kind of came up with this this last week, but it resonates for me. Genesis is a grandpa story. It's a grandpa story. It's grandpa pulling up his rocker, grabbing the family history off the shelf or the, or the family tree off the shelf and he's saying, sit down there, sonny. Let me tell you a little bit about who we are. Now, when grandpa tells a grandpa story, um, does he hit every, okay, is it like a, a college history textbook where every detail is in order and he's writing it like a journalist, unbiased? That's not how grandpa tells the story. When grandpa tells the story, he tells you what matters most 
to who you are. He tells you the heroic moments, maybe some of the tragic moments. He states and then states again, sometimes overstates or even exaggerates certain themes that he really wants to get across to you. And then there are other details that don't really matter. So he ignores all those together. But the point is this, he wants you to be able to answer this question. Where did we come from? Who are we? And that's what Genesis is after. Now, if you remember in uh, the preparation of, uh, of doing this last week, uh, I gave you an outline for the book. It was like, a, I don't know what I call it, like a geographical outline. Genesis moves from Eden to outside of Eden to Palestine to Egypt, right? This week I want to give you a little bit of a, a different uh, outline for this uh, because, because we're not going to have a chance to get to all the characters in Genesis today. So I just want you to have an opportunity to, to, to get to know them real quick okay so quick character outline this is probably how you know the book all right first there's Adam and Eve we just read that and that takes place in Genesis 1 through 3 after that we get Cain and Abel okay these are the children of Adam and Eve I'm going to put a little plus Seth up here in the corner because Seth is actually important he's the bloodline through which Jesus comes we find them in Genesis 4 through 5 after that we get Noah's Generation, right? Noah's a popular story. But by the way, maybe we shouldn't put this one on our nursery walls and our baby blankets because it's kind of sad. Um, that rolls through five through 10. Then we have the Tower of Babel, um, which is in Genesis 11. And then we have a major zoom in from humanity to a family, right? With Abraham, who's kind of like the main character of the story. Abraham is, he's on the pages for a lot. It's about chapter 12 to 24. Then after Abraham, we get Isaac. Isaac's not, he's kind of, honestly, he's kind of like a placeholder between Abraham and Jacob. Um, 21 to 35, after Isaac, we have anybody? Come on, help me out here. Yeah, we got Jacob. Jacob is 25 to 50. Like he's, yeah, he sticks around. Till the end, then he dies. And then, uh, then there's Joseph. Joseph comes in about 37 to 50. These are the grandpa stories we get told. Now again, for those of you who care, since we can't cover all of these stories today, let me just give you a few words that you might write beside the names of these. And then when you read their stories, you'll remember them as some of the key stories or the key themes. Beside Abraham, you might write the word father. Father, because he is in fact, Father Abraham and many sons. Okay. Wow. Some serious VBS nostalgia in here. Goldfish and Kool-Aid? Let's do it, right? All right. You might write Father because he's the founding father of Israel. You might write the word covenant as well next to him. Covenant. And we will get to that here in a second. Next to the name Isaac, you might write the word giggles because that's what his name means. He just made Abraham and Sarah giggle. Laugh with joy and awe whenever he was born. You might also write beside, uh, beside Isaac, Rebecca, the story of him finding uh, his wife is an important one. You might write beside his name, Sacrifice. That's an interesting story in Isaac's life. You might also write the word twins because he has twins named Jacob and Esau and ooh, the sibling rivalry, which brings up to Jacob. First, next to Jacob, you need to write the word sus. 
S-U-S. If you don't know what that means, come talk to our high schoolers afterwards, right? Because Jacob was a trickster. He was he's super sus, right? You also want to write beside Jacob's name Esau because him and his brother went at it. You might also want to write beside Jacob wrestler because Jacob was the wrestler. In fact, he wrestles with God. God renames him Israel and Israel means what? Wrestler. It means those who wrestle with God. Uh, and then you might write the number 12 because Jacob has 12 sons, one of which is Joseph. You probably know Joseph's story, pretty um, famous one. Um, next to Joseph's name, you might write dreamer in Egypt. Dreamer in Egypt. Because he dreams, he ends up in Egypt and it ends up saving the family. There's so much more to his story. Now let me just add one more here real quick. Um, I'm gonna write the name Judah down here. Judah. Okay, and it's important, like, <coughs> I added Seth, and I added Judah for the same reason. Do you know why? Because Joseph is not actually the one through whom Jesus' line runs through. Jo Judah is Joseph, one of Joseph's older brothers. Jacob had 12 of them, and it's actually through Judah's line the line of the tribe of Judah, right? It's Judah's line that Jesus comes through. Now, I'm not gonna tell you Judah's story though because, I mean, just go read it for yourself later, right? There are just some things that need to remain unsaid in church. But, again, these are the big grandpa stories that Genesis is telling us. Now, as I said to you all last week, grandpa story is my genre. It's not like an academic one. And it's certainly not the way that the Jews talk about Genesis. Uh, when the Jews talk about Genesis, uh, they call it the Torah. In fact, Genesis is the first book of the Torah for them, or the law. The Jews call their entire sacred library, if you will, the Tanakh. The Tanakh. We call the Tanakh the Old Testament, which is fine insider talk, but I would suggest to you that when you're talking with a Jew, you shouldn't call it the Old Testament. They don't think it's old. Call it the Hebrew Scriptures or the Tanakh, right? The reason why they call it the Tanakh is because the letters T, N, K represent the three parts of their canon. T stands for Torah, the five books of Moses, or the law, the law. The N stands for Nevim, which are the prophets, and the K stands for the Ketuvim, which are the writings. So let me give you a little visual representation of this here. Uh, here's the library of the Old Testament on your shelf. Uh, this right here, this part right here is the Torah. This part right here is the Nevim, the prophets. And this part right here is the Ketuvim, the writings, history books and the poetic books. Now back to Genesis. As you can see, Genesis is the first five books of law that begin our canon, begin the Old Testament, which leads us to this question today. How could a God of love and grace and goodness start his canon off with law? How could he? Bad PR move, God. 
Let me give you a modern day example of, of, of this, okay? Uh, these are like the people um, who are your friends when you go to their house. They're super hospitable. You go in, you're like, man, I love these people. They're super hospitable. Like, oh, hey, it's so nice to see you. But then they say this. They say, can you take your shoes off here at the door? <laughs> Hospitality meets law immediately. There was not a lot of laughter here. I'm assuming we got a lot of shoe off doors in this, in this <laughs> house today, okay? Okay, so let's go to war here for a second. At the very least, what you could do for us is just let us know at the beginning of the day when we're heading to your house that you're a shoe offer, okay? Just let us know so that we wear matching socks and that we don't wear the stank shoes. You know what I'm talking about? You wear the stank shoes, your feet are like stained and you walk in there like, I have to take off my shoes. You sure you want this? Okay, Can we, let's just sit six feet apart and like, it ain't, it ain't about COVID, I'm just saying, right? So is this God? Is God a shoe offer? Of course not. If God asked you to remove your shoes, he would wash your feet. Oh, that was a Bible joke, come on. <laughs> Force, at least you could have laughed at that. I was hoping for you. Uh, okay. So what's God doing here? What's God doing? We need to talk about what the point of law is if we really wanna understand here. Okay. Um, when you become a parent, uh, you start to really understand why rules and regulations are important, don't you? Parents, why do you put laws, if you will, rules, boundaries in your household? Is it because you love making your kid miserable? Kids are like, yeah. no, it's not because of that. It's actually because you love your kids. You want your kids to not just survive, but to thrive in life. So that's why we don't play in the street, honey. That's why we have a bedtime. That's why we don't eat copious amounts of sugar every day. That's why you're not allowed to just limitlessly watch screens on whatever station or whatever YouTube channel that you want. It's because I love you. Right? Now, uh, we can do it like this. Here's my opinion about law, okay? It's possible to have too little law and too much law. When you have a situation where there's too little law, what happens there is uh, this thing called anarchy. But when there's too much law, so on the opposite of the spectrum, there's this thing called tyranny, and neither of which are good. When you have too little law, you create a, uh, a community of chaos. Imagine if there were no traffic laws out there, no speed limits, no road signs or you know, lines on the road. How would that go? Some of us would thrive in that driving environment. Others of us, not so much, right? It would be chaos. So too little law is chaos, but then on the flip side, if you have too much law, it turns into coercion. So what you need is not too little law. What you need is not too much law. What you need is good law. Good law. Because you know what good law does? Good law doesn't oppress human freedom. It maximizes human flourishing. When you have good traffic laws, it makes it actually easier to drive on the road. You're more free, not less free, because of the good law. Are you with me? You following the argument? Let me say it to you like this. This is so important. Legality forms morality. You better believe that the laws that you vote in and legislate in your country or the laws that you establish in your house will form the people that live there. 
Good laws will form people towards good. Unjust laws will form people towards injustice. It just is what it is. It's the difference between Jim Crow laws and the civil rights movement. How do they form people? So um, let's go to the Psalms. The psalmist gets it right. This is how he literally starts the Psalter. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. Oh, they will be like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit in each season. I love that line. Their leaves will never wither and, and they prosper in all that they do. That's what good law will do for you. So back to Genesis. That said, enter stage right, the Torah. Genesis. And apparently, it's not just an origin story that answers the question, who are we? Identity, if you will. But it's also the beginning of God's law book, which establishes for us how do we flourish in life. Are you still following me? Okay. Now, there are two main theories, and there's not two main theories. There are two, there's lots of theories. There are two theories that I believe are most credible when it comes to uh, the composition date of Genesis, like when Genesis was finalized and written. The first one is somewhere around 539 BC. It's about a thousand years after the events of Moses. As the Israelite people are tra- transitioning, from the foreign overlords um, in Babylon to Persia. Babylon took them into exile, foreign slavery, then Persia kicked Babylon's rear, so they took over, right? It was at this point in the transition that many people believe that this was written. The second major theory is somewhere around 1450. I'm more inclined to this theory, by the way. 1450 to 1350 BC. It's the idea that Moses and an editorial team wrote this for the Israelites as they transitioned out of Egyptian captivity and into the promised land, uh, which is Canaan. That's about this time period. Now, I don't particularly care which one you choose. Make sure you're thoughtful about it and you read up. The reason why I don't care is because it's actually basically the same situation. In both of these situations, where have the Israelites been? In captivity in a pagan land. Let's take the second one because it's the one that I like better today. (laughs) They've been in Egypt for 400 years if the Bible's right. 400 under a pagan regime. In Egypt, they worshiped suns as gods, frogs as gods, Pharaoh as God. This was unlike their way of life as the people of Yahweh. And then as they move out of Egypt and they head towards Canaan, let me tell you about the Canaanites, right? You thought Egypt was bad. The Canaanites make hell's angels look like choir boys. These are not good people. 
Allow me to introduce you to just one of the Canaanite gods that is in the Bible. This is a, a sketch of Molech. Molech has like the head of a bull. He usually had his arms outstretched and in his belly was a furnace. And that's where they would sacrifice the children, you know, like Canaanites do. Sometimes children up to four years old. It was believed by many Canaanites that uh, if you wanted blessing on a new home, you would lay as the cornerstone a sacrificed child. These are not good people. These are not people like the Israelite God, Yahweh. So no wonder Yahweh feels passionate about this. This is a perfect time to say, hey, I know you all may have forgotten or this may never been taught to you by your fathers or your father's fathers, but let me tell you who you are, where you come from, and let me tell you how we flourish as a people because it's not like any of them. You following with me? All right. Now, that being said, that leads us to our first, uh, or excuse me, our second main theme of, of Genesis. We talked about uh, this one last week. We will be able to get to these two this week and, and this one in part. Okay. The second main theme of Genesis, though, is sin. Sin. If Genesis is law, breaking God's law is what we might call sin. And I'm going to tell you what, Genesis even though our culture has tried to remove sin from the vernacular and moral consciousness of the emerging generation, Genesis and the God of Genesis takes sin very seriously. Genesis chapter two, verse 16, the story of sin begins here. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man. Okay, we're back in the garden. We're picking up where we left off from last week. Creation is history. Adam and Eve have been stewarded with leadership over a very good planet. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Uh, now, the story starts with a tree. And God says, don't eat it or you'll die. And if you read over a few verses later, the conflict in the plot happens when a snake walks onto the scene and disputes God's claims. Real quick sidebar, um, just because this is interesting for some of you all. You should know that uh, there are two main ways of reading this passage. Some people read this passage as literal history. A snake walks in on two feet and begins a conversation about God with Eve. Let's talk about trees, you know? Other people, uh, more modern readers, have a hard time with that, so they believe this is more allegorical or parabolic, figurative language, if you will. Now, again, either way, I don't care how you, how you read it. Be well-informed. I don't care. Because either way, what we must agree on as good Bible readers is this is true. It's true. And what's interesting is that billions of people for thousands of years now have thought that the representation of the human condition that we get in Genesis 2 and 3 is the best one in all of human literature. They believe the story that we get here, the explanation of why we are the way that we are, it is true. 
Now back to the tree. If we're going to give God um, some credit here, which we always should, we should give him credit for the, uh, you, know, let's, let's, um, you know, let's do some new stuff today. Here we go. We got, I, got, I got a highlighter. Yeah. We should give him credit for being very, very clear about what his command was. It's cl- if the command is anything, it's clear. Do not eat from that tree. Which one? Uh, that one. And if you do, guess what? You shall die. That's clear. No loopholes in this one, right? Now, the problem, though, wasn't with the clarity of the command. The problem was with how the tree looked to Eve, her perception of it. Because after the snake comes and casts doubt, it says that the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. It looked, it looked good to her. And its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Adam was with her and he gave some to her. Because it, because it resonated with her, her, her feelings, because it excited her desires, because it made sense to Eve, she decided to take the knowledge of good and evil out of God's hands and into her own hands here. Do you see? And what could go wrong though? What could go wrong when we take the knowledge of evil into our own hands and out of God's? Everything. Everything. Now, I will give Eve a little credit, and Adam, here. It's kind of confusing that God calls it the knowledge of good and evil, because that's what we want, right? Isn't that what we want? You would think that if this is the mother of all sins, it would be like a bad one, like the tree of war, the tree of lies, you know, the tree of violence, uh, the tree of voting Democrat, no Republican, depending on who you ask. But it would be something really, really bad, not, not knowledge of good and evil, right? But here's what I think is going on here. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there are actually two trees in the garden. You seen this, right? Yes, this is my tree. All right, just get over it. I'm not an artist. There's two. Well, what's the other tree? Okay, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then there's another tree. What's that one? Yeah, it's tree of life. And uh, the tree of life, you can eat, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's a big nope. Oops. That's a big nope. You can't eat. Now, I believe that these two trees are centered in Eden and centered in the story for an important reason because they point to the two keys of a relationship with God. Are you ready? We receive life from God. So we eat from the tree of life. But we leave good and evil up to God. So do we do not eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Did you know the idea of the knowledge of good and evil, by the way, in Semitic culture actually means uh, thinking that you have both the right and the ability, the right and the ability 
to determine good and evil for yourself. So if we wanted to name this tree in modern day terms, perhaps we would name it um, the tree of follow your heart or the tree of, of, of make your truth. You do you. Oh, the Bible's still relevant today. This, uh, this is actually what the snake's temptation supports. He says, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Grasping the knowledge of good and evil for yourself will be a good thing for you, but it wasn't. So interestingly enough, this is the mother of all sins, isn't it? Assuming that we know better than a holy, perfect, all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful, and loving God who designed us. This is the root of every temptation, isn't it? That's why it's so paradigmatic for the human condition. We seize authority from God, and then we redefine good and evil based on the voice in your head and the feelings in your heart and the opinions of those around you. By the way, I think that this is a, uh, a great definition for sin. I think I swooped past it earlier. Yeah, there we go. You know what sin is? Sin is when we don't trust God's way as the best way. And man, have we ever been doing that for a long time. Hey, did you know, by the way, did you know that um, Adam... isn't actually a proper name. It means human. Did you know that? And Eve, it isn't a proper name either. This is why nobody in the Old Testament is named Adam or Eve. Uh, Eve means life. And isn't that an interesting one? This is a story about how humanity and life got to be the way that they are. Now, again, as a parent, uh, this should resonate because good parents give their kids rules and restrictions. In the McKenzie household, our two main battles every day with our young children uh, boil down to uh, these two things. Why can't I have more dessert? <laughs> and why can't I watch more screens? Ugh, you're the worst dad. I'm gonna tell everybody, you're pastor, your job's over. You know, like, <laughs> and I explain to them every time Okay, I explained to him, the reason why you don't eat endless sugar and watch you know, screens all day long is because of the deleterious effects on your health in the present and long term. And they're like, oh, we don't know what deleterious means. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so, which is fine, it's fine, it's fine. Here's the deal. I got 30 years on him, 30. So I got a little better idea about how life plays out than they do, right? And isn't it infinitely more so between us and God? Infinitely. He got more than 30 years on us. I'm just saying. He's the creator. He's also your father, which means he knows how you're designed and he wants what's best for you because he's a good father. He's a good one. He'll guide us to our good if we learn to trust. Now, back to the, the story. Let's get back up here. 
You know how it plays out. Eve eats the fruit. Adam does too. He's with her. And uh, there's four big fallout points, four big consequences of sin that come next. Uh, the first one is, uh, is deep shame, internal turmoil, right? The second one is estrangement from God, vertical turmoil. The third one is alienation from one another, horizontal turmoil and your horizontal relationships. And then the last one is disorientation with the created world. The impact of sin is all around them. And from this point forward, what we see is humanity perpetuate that sin. Now, as the story keeps going, um, there are like three iconic moments after this that just show us how, uh, how bad it kind of gets. How do I go back into presentation? I think that makes it look prettier. There we go. So uh, let's just let's fill it out. Let's fill it out. Adam and Eve sin. Um, you know, they ate the fruit. And uh, what's the consequence of their sin? They get kicked out the garden. They get kicked out of Eden. But have you ever noticed the end of Genesis 3? There's actually this moment of grace and beauty. God gives them the just punishment for their sin, but he also makes clothes for them as they leave. He provides for them. Right? And he gives them a promise. He says to Eve, one day your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. Already we're beginning to get a vision of his plan. Now after that is the story of Cain and Abel. What's the sin here, y'all? Murder. Cain murders his brother Abel in envy and jealousy. I would suggest to you that the first story of sin is people breaking Jesus' first great commandment, love God, and then the second story is them breaking the second commandment, love, it, love neighbors, right? He murders his brother. There's this iconic moment in the story, by the way, where uh, God comes to Cain and he's like, hey, where's your brother Abel? As if God doesn't know. And Cain's like, Ask you, I don't, I don't, what are you asking me? I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? He says, am I my brother's keeper? To which the answer to that is yes, Cain, you are. You, you are your, okay, you are your brother's keeper. But, so the consequence for Cain is he actually gets kicked off his land, which is devastating for him. But there's this moment of grace. Because you remember what God gives Cain? He gives him a mark of protection as he leaves the land. Next iconic story is the story of Noah's generation. Woo, doggy. Talk about rock bottom. At this point in time, the entire world is so wicked that what's the consequence? A flood. God decides to hit the reset button. If you, you ever been playing a video game, you get so angry at it, you're like, reset. This is what God does, except his anger and frustration is just and righteous. Now there is grace here though, because he puts Noah, the one righteous man he can find and his family on an ark. And he gives a promise, a wonderful promise, the form of a rainbow, that he will never destroy humanity in this way again. Last iconic story is the Tower of Babel, which there's many opinions on what the, the sin here is. I would call the sin uh, self-glory, 
vainglory maybe. Basically, they take human ingenuity and creativity, which was a gift to them as image bearers, and they try to build themselves up into the sky rather than using it to just be bearer, image bearers of God. So what happens? What's the consequence? Do you remember? They are scattered. There's this interesting point in the story where they say, let's build a tower so that we won't be scattered. And then what happens? They get scattered, right? So we're left wondering, what grace, what promise do we have come next? Now, I want you to pretend you're an Israelite. You've read through Genesis chapter 11, okay? At this point, what conclusions are you coming to? About yourself, about your people, about human beings. Man, they're really messing this up. They got a good thing going there with the whole Eden thing, you know? And Okay, it's like the first time uh, my dad met my wife, Lindsay. We were dating, did the whole bring her home thing. He met Lindsay. And he's like, Tyler, come here, I gotta talk to you. In the other room. He's like, hey, listen, listen to me, listen to me. Don't screw this up. <laughs> now, sadly, the humans did though. They had a good thing, even better thing than that, right? They had a good thing going, they screwed it up. So it begs the question from us today, what is God gonna do? He takes sin seriously. The managerial arrangement he made with his image bearers is not working out. They are rebellious, violent, murderous, scandalous, arrogant, and envious. What is he gonna do? Will he fire us? Will he give up on the relationship? Will he wipe the slate clean and start over? Or does he have one more act of grace left? One more promise left to give? And enter Genesis 12. We're about to experience a major zoom in in the story, by the way. The first 11 chapters cover like the history of humanity. Some people believe it's millions of years. At the very least, it's thousands. Now for the rest of the book of Genesis, from 12 to 50, we're gonna zoom in on one family, four generations beginning with Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, a pagan from Ur, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and uh, make you famous. You'll be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, you need to understand that the John 3.16 rescue plan that you hear churches like us chirping about all the time, this is ground zero. This is where it begins, right here. The Old Testament is not just some random collection of like prophet proof texts that you can point out and say, oh, there's Jesus. Oh, look, there's Jesus. No, it is an interwoven narrative where every book, every story, every prophet points to the same thing. And that is Genesis to Jesus. And Genesis 12 is the root passage. It's a covenant, it's a promise that begins with Abraham. He says, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. To which Abraham spits out his water. And he says, wow, okay, so speaking of family, God, um, me and Sarah don't have one. 
Uh, we didn't have any kids. We couldn't. And I'm 76. She's 66. Think we missed the window. She's closer to putting me in diapers, to be honest with you. All right? But 24 years later, Abraham and Sarah, uh, they give birth to Isaac, right? Let's see here. And uh, Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And Jacob gives birth to, you know, Judah and so on and so on until we get to David, right? Eventually King David. And David is after him. There's a lot of different people, you know, like Josiah's in there. And, you know, uh, up here, there's some pretty cool guys, by the way. Like, you should read Matthew 1. There's like a guy named Ram. Let's just throw him up there. There's Ram and Salmon. Those are Bible names. Come on, millennials, Gen Z. I've seen you dancing TikTok stuff in a park. You clearly don't care about your dignity, right? So just name your kids Ram and Salmon. Go for it, right? Uh, Josiah, there's a Zadok. I like Zadok. That's a cool name. And eventually, after a bunch of people, it ends up with Jesus. Let me give you the Genesis 12 promise in street talk, okay? Basically, God says to Abraham, Jesus is going to be your great, 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 times a lot of greats, grandson. That's a good thing for everybody. Now, um, as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, we just see this covenant basically threaded through. This is the crimson thread. It starts with Abraham's uh, covenant, and then it's updated with Moses' covenant, and then it's updated with David's covenant, and then it's updated with the new covenant. We'll study each of these over the course of the years. We get to them in different books of the Bible. Let's just do a quick breeze through, though. As we'll, uh, as we'll learn next week when Mark comes, um, Israel ends up at the end of Genesis in Egypt, and that doesn't go well for them. They are enslaved. 400 years later, things aren't looking good for them. But there's this amazing moment where it says the Israelites continued to groan under their Egyptian burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and uh, that cry rose up to God, and God heard their groaning and he remembered what? His covenant promise to who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he looked down and knew it's time to act. And act he does. And out of Egypt they go into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he updates the covenant with them. The Mosaic covenant, they call it. Now, I think the best spot for you to learn about Moses' covenant is, uh, is in Deuteronomy uh, 28 through 30. You should go read that this week in preparation for Mark because Moses basically gives you a snapshot of how the rest of the Old Testament's about to play. Okay, he says, okay, here's, here's the pathway, y'all. Here's your pathway. Uh, follow the law. You've got the law now. Follow it, Israel. If you do follow it, guess what you will get? Blessing. That like that Genesis 12, Abraham blessing, we're all waiting for, right? But he says, if you don't follow it, then guess what you will get? Curses, right? And specifically, he says, you're going back into slavery. You'll go back into, you just came out of Egypt, you're gonna go back there. Now, if you read 28 through 30 this week, what you'll see is that Moses, has got a little snark to him. Okay, so Moses is like, hey, I've been hanging out with y'all for 40 years, so I know how this is gonna play out. This will be the path you choose. 
you're gonna go into slavery, but when you do, he says, don't give up hope because some way, somehow, you'll see God will stay faithful to his covenant. And in fact, he does. Now fast forward several generations, we get to David's covenant. Second Samuel chapter seven, David has now become king. First Samuel is about David, the shepherd, David, the giant killer, David, the fugitive, right? Second Samuel is when he takes over as king. And when he takes over as king, man, he's got it going on. He kicks the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. He establishes that as the capital city. He brings the Ark of the Covenant there. He unites the 12 tribes. Go, David, it's your birthday. Like he's on a roll, right? And he decides, you know what? I'm living in this palace. It don't make sense that God's still living in a tent. So let's get him out of the tent. I'm gonna build him a temple. But before he does, the prophet Nathan comes up and says, whoa, whoa, whoa slow your roll, man. God's got a different plan. Here's the Davidic covenant. Nathan says to David on behalf of God, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever, right? These are the three key aspects of the Davidic covenant. Promise. Now, if you were reading this Old Testament stuff before Jesus did his thing, and you were like, okay, a son of David who builds the temple, who comes to your mind? That would be Solomon, because Solomon was David's son who built the temple, right? Here's the only problem, though, okay? When Solomon comes to the throne, even though he's got all the wisdom in the world, he didn't know how to apply it. First Kings 6.38, it says, so it took seven years to build the temple. Good job, Solomon, you built the temple. But then Solomon also built a palace for himself and it took 13 years to complete the construction of the palace. Is there a problem here to you? Yes, this is an indicator of how things are gonna go with Solomon. Solomon, you got all the wisdom in the world, but you ain't smarter than a fifth grader. Because guess what he does? He outfits every single one of these rooms in his grand vast palace with wives and concubines, about a thousand in some total. And there is no way to remember that many birthdays or anniversaries. So Solomon, you are the loser, my friend. He actually ends up dividing the kingdom, not uniting it. The 10 Northern tribes break off from the two Southern tribes and the people of Israel just spin off from there. If you read first and second Kings, which comes after first and second Samuel, you know what the storyline of that book is? They're just hoping and waiting that one of these Kings is the David promise. They just go, basically they, they profile king after king. So this king came and then this king and then there's this king and then there's this king. And the underlying question the whole time is, is he gonna be the one? Is this the great son of David who will build the temple and secure the royal throne forever? Is he the one? And one king after the other, it's nope, not him, uh-uh, definitely no. Like even the good kings aren't that good. So finally we get to slavery time, to exile time. Isaiah prophesies when the Northern kings go into Assyrian exile but he does not forget the promise. Here's a Christmas verse for you. A child is born to us, a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, who? David, for all eternity. Isaiah says it again in Isaiah 11. He says, out of the stump of Jesse, who's Jesse? That would be David's dad. Out of the stump of Jesse will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. 
Fast forward about 150 years to Jeremiah's time. He's prophesying when the southern kingdom's about to go into exile. And he says, the time is coming when I will raise up a righteous branch. Oh, he's bringing the branch stuff back out again. He likes that metaphor apparently. And he's coming from whose line? King David's line. And you gotta understand, both of these, both these guys are, are, are preaching from exile, but they're both saying the same thing. You're going in, but don't worry, the blessing will figure its way out. After they spend about 50 years in Babylonian exile, Persia takes over. And you know what Persia does with all the exiles? Sends them back. Persia says, go back home. Go back to Jerusalem. And when the, the Israelites come back to Jerusalem, they start to rebuild. But how does the rebuilding project go? Not very good. This is in the Bible, by the way. You know, read Ezra, read, read Nehemiah. It doesn't actually go very great. Ezra 3 tells us many of the older the older priests, Levites, and leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. Why were they weeping? Because they remembered the greatness of the first one and they realized the second one don't hold a candle to it. This is not that David moment. But the prophets still couldn't shut up about it. Zechariah, yes, this is a book, by the way, in the Old Testament, all right? Zechariah, uh, says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies say. Here is the man called the branch. There it is again, the branch. And guess what this branch is gonna do? He's gonna build the temple of the Lord and then he'll receive royal honor. Serve as priest from his throne. Huh. A king who's also a priest. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, says it like this. Look, I'm sending my messenger... Um, who will prepare the way before me. And then the Lord you're seeking will cut, suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. Now, who's the messenger who prepares the way for Jesus? Hey, John the Baptist, right? And isn't it interesting? This is the last book of the Old Testament. The first gospel that is written is Mark. Many believe it's the oldest one. And how does Mark begin his gospel? With John the Baptist. The one who will do what? He's the messenger who will prepare the way. Now, while Mark is probably the oldest gospel, first one written, Matthew is the first one in the canon, right? It's the first book of the New Testament. And what does the very first verse of Matthew say? The very first? It's thrilling literature, y'all. It's a genealogy, a family tree. Go read it later and, later and let your heart be just lifted by God. But how does this book begin? So this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the fireworks should be going off, right? David, Abraham, this is the one storyline from Genesis to Jesus. We call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know that testament is just another word for covenant, right? Here we see that the same God who once made a covenant with Abraham has now made a new covenant with all humanity. And speaking of new covenants, we don't have time to cover this today, but the good news is that we'll spend an entire Sunday on it later this year. Now, wow, that's a lot of Bible, Tyler. <clears throat> I see that hand in the back, go ahead. I thought this sermon was about Genesis. It is, it is, because I'll say it again. Genesis is when the covenant gets off the ground. And Genesis is the first time we see God's 
faithfulness to the covenant tested. And guess what? He's committed to it. Can we have a devotional moment here? You can count on God. You can. Because he will not give up on you or his plan. If God makes you a promise, he'll keep it. And as we reflect on Genesis, we can't help but see this after sinner, after sinner, after sinner, after sinner. We see that God will put his thumb on the scale. He will miraculously intervene. He'll bend the macro arc of human history. He will be faithful to his plan. Motivated by unconditional love for perpetual sinners, he will impregnate the barren. He will push aside kings. He will send rams and visions and dreams and provision. He will win wars. He will make sons. He will wrestle you through the night. He will go to slavery with you and then he'll go to prison with you and he will go to whatever valley life takes you into. He will even walk through the valley of the shadow of death with you. And then when those valleys turn to mountains, he'll go with you there as well. When those valleys turn into thrones, those prison cells turn into crowns, he'll go there and guide you. He will work through the most unlovable people. He will forgive the most unforgivable sinners. Even when evil is at its best, God is still 10 moves ahead. From Genesis to Jesus, his covenant stood, and it still stands for us today. In Christ, the apostle Paul says, for in Jesus, every one of God's promises is a yes. So while Genesis may be the first book of the law, you know what I think? I also think it's the first book of God's amazing grace. And Genesis has a question for you today. How much more evidence do you need that God loves and is committed to you? His promise still stands millennia later. And the lengths that he has gone to keep that promise is stunning. So you know what's even more stunning? The links we have to go to resist and reject it. So I invite you today, will you make this your origin story? Will you make this way of life yours? Will you make Abraham your spiritual father and the great son of Abraham your savior and your Lord? Genesis 15, six says, then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, look up into the sky, count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed. Believed. And the Lord God counted it to him as righteousness because of his faith. So take out your communion. And as we reflect on Jesus, the one through whom all God's promises are yes, I would ask you today, believe again. Or for the first time, believe in him.